Okay, we have some um, announcements to remind everybody about. Email has gone out on some of these. Uh, Vacation Bible School is coming up, and the dates on that are going to be July 24th to 26th. That's a, a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from 9 in the morning until 12 noon. Uh, Mark asked for prayer, prayer support, and we need more volunteers. So if you're able to help out during the day, that would be appreciated. Also, please sign up your kids for Vacation Bible School. Currently, only five have signed up. Anybody notice anything different? I said six the other day. Somebody emailed in afterwards and said, I just saw it's in June. It's in July instead of June. Please cancel my registration. So we're going in the wrong direction. Um, Sign up so we know we need to plan. Also, we're looking for, there's a winter or Arctic theme, so we're looking for Christmas trees, snow decorations, things of that sort that you can loan. Uh, Also, uh, we need some help from folks to decorate on the Sunday before July, that would be on um, July 16th and 23rd, and then also to help uh, take everything down uh, following Vacation Bible School. Also a reminder about the same kind of thing for the Washington, D.C. trip, and let us know if you sign up for that, and the information on that is on the Dean Bible Ministries website. Uh, we also are planning the vaca- uh, the uh, Um, baptismal service a week from this coming Sunday on July 9th at Grace Bible Church. Then um, last night I saw the obituary for uh, Gene Brown posted uh, several places, got some emails, and the uh, celebration for Gene's life is going to be on Saturday morning, July 8th at 10.30 in the morning at Grace Bible Church on Schroeder Road, which is up just uh, north of Willowbrook Mall. Takes about, without traffic, about 20 uh, 20 minutes or so, 20, 25 minutes from here uh, to get there. So that will be at 10.30 Saturday morning, July 8th, and pastors David Dunn, Bruce Bumgardner, and myself will be officiating. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in right relationship uh, with the Lord and ready to study his word, ready to grow spiritually. Scripture says that we're in right, when we're in right relationship with him, then that which is produced has eternal value. But when we are living according to the sin nature, then it has only temporal value. Let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for this time and opportunity to come together as a body of believers to encourage each other by our presence, to be reminded of your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity, the freedom in this nation as we come together this, uh, this weekend, uh, beginning a celebration of our nation's birthday, to be reminded that it was founded upon biblical principles, founded upon uh, divine principles of divine institution, which are true for all people at all times, whether they are believers or not. To recognize that this nation has a unique heritage of freedom, and as such, has been, that freedom has been the target of Satan ever since. Father, we pray for us as believers that even though we live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, that we may shine forth as lights, that we may be examples of your grace and your goodness. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things in your word that we study this evening, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our ability to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I got to fix something here on the computer. I just noticed when I looked up here, and that is that it is not showing anything on my laptop. Let's see if I can do something to fix this. Well, interesting. Okay. All right, what we're looking at here is our 15th lesson in this series on giving an answer where we've been studying 1 Peter 3.15, which is focused on the command to every believer. It's not an option, whoever you are. We are to be prepared, be ready, uh, be trained as part of preparation to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We have to understand these things. We spend a lot of time talking about how to do that at the beginning, that how we do something is as important as what we do for a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. So methodology is important. And I emphasize that. That was one of the, there were probably a dozen things that when I was in seminary that Tommy Ice and I constantly got into discussions with other students about, and that was you can't do that because that's the wrong way. It's the methodology. What part of that don't you understand? And uh, in Christendom, there's this idea that they, because they're influenced by the pragmatics of the world, that if it gets somebody saved, then it must be okay. No, just because God's grace allowed and uh, his word to bear fruit doesn't mean that you had anything to do with it or that he blesses the way you did it. And a right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. So we had to understand that. Now we're looking at some of the things that we need to uh, control in terms of basic information. Because facts are still important, evidences are still important, and that information is important. And what I'm hoping to do in these few lessons is just capture a few things, not give you everything there is to document these, but just two or three things that you can grab hold of and put on a three by five card and memorize so that if something comes up, you can say, okay, I remember this, this, and this. You may not remember these quotes, but you can remember two or three of the people who gave the quotes, and that's, uh, that's important. 
So what we've done here is look at three questions. Tonight we're going to look at the question, who is Jesus, which is the second question. The first question was, can we trust the Bible? As part of that, we have the question, can we trust the gospel records? And yes, we can. I didn't spend a lot of time on that because if we can trust the Bible and the gospels are part of the Bible, then we can trust the gospel records. And so I, I didn't drill down on that particular area. So tonight, when we look at the question, who was Jesus, we can surely trust the gospel records. I've had people say, well, don't you know that that the Gospels weren't written down until 100 or 150 or even 200 years after Jesus. I said, that's interesting because if you look at some of the early sermons that we have and notes and scraps of paper called lectionaries that were that just had written down on them the daily or weekly reading of Scripture in the church services, that we have quotes from the Gospels that go back into the late first century. So if they weren't written until 150, that's kind of unusual that somebody would be quoting from Matthew as early as 85 or 90, and that we would have a scrap from the Gospel of John from approximately 120. So just knowing some things like that sort of helps uh, put you in a position where you're not on the defensive but on the offense in having a conversation with somebody. So we asked this question, who was Jesus? The third question has to do with the resurrection, and that is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is that just some, something made up? Is that just something legendary? Uh, aren't there other mythologies that have people rising from the dead? Uh, is this unique? Is this uh, documented? How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? So we'll get to that. But tonight and, and uh, next week, we're going to address this question, who was Jesus? Now, that really involves three things. One, the first part of this we looked at last week, the prophecies from the Old Testament. We looked at uh, about nine of them from last week. I talked about the probabilities of their being fulfilled in one person, and it's just uh, almost mathematically impossible, according to the laws of probability, for one person to fulfill nine of them. And I talked about the fact that it's equivalent to the chances of a blind man choosing a marked quarter if you were to spread out quarters across the entire, or, or silver dollars rather, across the entire state of Texas uh, to a depth of two or three feet, and the chances of one person going out blindfolded or blind going out and picking that marked, um, marked coin, it's not going to happen. And so that's the same probability. So being able to understand that is, is very helpful. So the prophecies from the Old Testament, there were over 100 that were fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. The others will be fulfilled when he returns a second time, understanding there are two comings of the Messiah, one in for suffering and one in glory is important, especially if you're talking with somebody who's from a Jewish background. Their question that they always ask is, well, Jesus didn't fulfill all the prophecies of the Messiah. He only fulfilled some of them. And walking through that 
uh, twofold aspect of his coming is, is, is important because they still focus on the kingdom glory promises rather than the suffering savior promises. So we looked at prophecies from the Old Testament. Tonight we're going to look at this question, did Jesus really exist? And what did he say about himself? Who is Jesus? So that's our starting point tonight. Bertrand Russell, in an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian, wrote the following. Now, Bertrand Russell was a 20th century skeptic. He was a philosopher. He was considered very intelligent, but he's a pagan philosopher. He's an atheist. He was a total skeptic about Christianity, totally rejected everything about Christianity. And he wrote in the early 20th century, historically, it's quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we know nothing about him. Now, Today we live in a world uh, where a lot of young people especially, but some older people as well, have been so enmeshed in fantasy. They have watched so many fantasy TV shows, so many fantasy uh, movies, and read so much science fiction that for some of these people, it's really hard for them to separate fact from fantasy. And so they they don't really understand what's true and what's not true. They're not uh, people who have spent a lot of time studying history. But somebody like Bertrand Russell should have known history and that this was, even at his time, a totally bogus claim. We do have many sources that reference Jesus, not just biblical, and not just from the early church. He went on to say regarding Christ, he said, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in those respects. I'd want to know, well, what do you mean by wisdom and what do you mean by virtue and where do you get those ideas? asking those kinds of questions. Now, in order to put together the introduction for this, there are still people today, despite all of the historical and literary evidence that Jesus existed, still doubt that. I went to a website, Richard Dawkins' website, and there is a short article there by a man named Raphael Lattister or Lattaster, And he said, the first problem we encounter when trying to discover more about the historical Jesus is the lack of early sources. What he means by that is there aren't any, but that other than the Bible. So so that's part of his assumption he puts out there. He says, the earliest sources only reference the clearly fictional Christ of faith. So that's another claim that he makes, that you do have a few early sources, but the earliest ones, they are only talking about Jesus as he's understood to be the savior of the world. So that's his claim, that there's no sources other than those who are pro-Jesus as savior. He says these early sources compiled decades after the alleged events. Now, decades can be an ambiguous term. That can be 30 years or it can be 130 years. 
He says they were compiled decades after the alleged events all, notice the word all, whenever you're reading something like this, always look to the meaning of all. Whenever somebody says all, usually that's where they have a problem. All stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, which gives us reason to question them. The authors of the Gospels fail to name themselves, describe their qualifications, or show any criticism with their foundational sources, which they also fail to identify. Now, a question you'd ask there is, well, would you tell me where Tacitus defines his sources, or where Suetonius defines his sources, or some of the contemporary historians uh, from that time, just any ancient literature, does it define uh, sources or does it necessarily give, give authorship in the way that we do in modern times? And then he makes the claim filled with mythical and non-historical information and heavily edited over time. Where does he get that information? You know, those are the kinds of questions document that. These are claims or assertions that are made that have no foundation. There's no evidence of that. They just constantly get thrown out, but there's nothing to, to back, them, back them up. So let's look at just some facts and some information to indicate that uh, there is uh, information out there. And uh, one of the things they always deny or re is their understanding of the, of the New Testament. They always try to, you'll still run into people who do this. They will want to uh, late date the New Testament. What do I mean by late date? Well, it was, none of it was written in the first century. Uh, most, uh, maybe Paul, a few things, but a lot of it was written in the second, second century and, and much, much, much later. And the problem is, you go back to what I taught when we looked at uh, confirmatory evidence in the Bible, that there's evidence that the New Testament was all written in the, in the first century. But there's a scholar by the name of John A.T. Robertson, Robinson. And Robinson wrote a book called Honest to God in the early 60s, and he's considered the father of the God is Dead movement. But he also wrote a book later on the Gospels. Now, this is a guy who is a bona fide liberal theologian, rejects supernaturalism, rejects uh, what you and I would consider anything close to a conservative view of the Bible. And he claims, and, and conservative Christians wouldn't even go along with this, he claims that every book in the New Testament was written before the fall of Jerusalem. That was all written before 70. So that's an important piece of information to have because it shows that people who claim it was all written later, here's one of their greatest scholars, and he puts everything before 70 because that's what you have to do if you're going to be, you're going to have to put it in the first century if you're honest with archaeological evidence, inscriptional evidence, things of that, things of that nature. Well, there are a number of non-Christian, I want to start with non-Christian writers who say something about Jesus and give evidence that they are aware of the existence of Jesus and the beliefs of Christians and the expansion of Christianity. And the first one we're going to look at is uh, Cornelius Tacitus. His dates are A.D. 55 to 120. So he's born about the time that the church is really expanding. He's born a little over 20 years after the crucifixion. 
and his time of adulthood is from about 75 after the fall of Jerusalem until until 120, so for a period of about 45 years. Gary Habermas, who is an evangelical scholar who's written a book on on uh, Jesus and the evidence for his existence and the resurrection, a number of other apologetics works, says that Tacitus was a Roman historian who lived through the reigns of over a half a dozen Roman emperors. He's been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome, an individual who generally acknowledged among scholars for his moral integrity and essential goodness. That's a quote from Moses Hadass who wrote the introduction to the complete works of Tacitus. So Hadass is certainly not a believer. Uh, name sounds uh, very Jewish, but he affirms the importance of Tacitus as a witness in his historical works in, uh, to the, of Rome in the first century. Uh, Tacitus wrote two works, the Annals and the Histories. The Annals, uh, where we believe originally had 18 books, not all of them have survived, we, but it covers the period from Augustus' death, Caesar Augustus's death in 14 to that of Nero in 68, and the histories uh, begins uh, after Nero's death and goes to the death of Domitian in uh, 96. And in the annals, he which was written about 115. So think about that. That is about uh, 80 years after the death of Christ. He wrote that, and he is talking about and describing what happened in Rome with the great fire of Nero and how uh, this fire started. And I've read other accounts recently that that in Rome, especially in the poorer sections, everything that was built was built of wood, and it was like, it was hovels, and they were very close together, the streets and alleys were very narrow, and it would be very easy, in fact, there were always fires that would spring up from uh, fire in the fireplace, cooking fires would get out of control, things like that. So, uh, Nero had to find an explanation for this, so he pinned it on uh, the Christians, and that, because otherwise it reflected so poorly on him, and that was uh, what the rumor was. So Tacitus writes in his annals, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. See, so the first thing we learn is that there's clearly a group in Rome that is referred to at the time of Nero that are called Christians. So if there's a group that are called Christians, then that presupposes a certain amount of information and knowledge about uh, Jesus by that time. Names him Christus, which is a misspelling, but that often happens in the ancient world, from whom the name had its origin. And then he tells us something about Christ that he suffered the extreme penalty, which would be death, and in, as a penalty, this is a, an execution, during the reign of Tiberius, so it locates it at the time of Tiberius, and an even narrower time frame would be during the um, time that Pontius Pilate was a procurator, and then he says, very uh, uh, enigmatic statement, he says, and a most mischievous 
superstition. I think maybe that is an allusion to the resurrection. A most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment. Okay, that is, this movement was checked by the death. But he says, but again it broke out not only in Judea. So something happened to stop it, and then all of a sudden it just broke out in Judea, uh, the first source of the evil. But even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So what we see in this quote is that he recognizes the historicity of Jesus. This is written in 115, but he's writing the history that occurs in Rome in the uh, 50s and 60s. He recognizes the historicity of Jesus. Second, he recognizes the historicity of Pilate. There is no other ancient source that mentions Pilate. Now, a couple of weeks ago when I talked about archaeology, we did have found in around 1990 there was discovered a slab with an inscription about Pontius Pilate on it at Caesarea by the sea. There is a facsimile of it there. The original is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So he attests to the historicity of Pilate. He recognizes the time frame of Jesus' existence. It's under Tiberius. He affirms his death by execution and implies indirectly the resurrection. So contrary to the claim of those that there's no nothing written affirming the existence of Jesus uh, from an early source or anybody other than those who are, are sympathetic with Jesus, this is, this is wrong. Now there's a second quote. I found this one quite interesting. What happens, we haven't gotten there yet in Matthew, but what happens at the time of Jesus' death? What happens between 12 and 3? The earth is covered in darkness, right? So you would think that, is that just local or is that evidenced by uh, throughout the empire? And we see a couple of different writers who, who have, they, their works haven't survived, but they've been quoted by others later on that there was a time of darkness that they tried to explain as an, an eclipse. The problem with that is you can't have a solar eclipse at the time of the full moon. Jesus is crucified at Passover, which is a full moon. So their, their explanation uh, doesn't work. Well, one of these is uh, Thallus, who li lived around 52. Okay, so he's about the time of the early writings of the Apostle Paul. He's quoted by Julius Africanus, a Christian, in AD 221. So his works survived for a while, but they're no longer extant. And Thallus states, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, uh, Africanus writes, this darkness Thales in the third book of his history calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Okay, so then we have a third example is from the writings of an administrator in the Roman Empire in Bithynia. This is in uh, the north central area of, what, of uh, what we call Turkey today. He was a Roman author, writer. His, his uh, father, Pliny the Elder, uh, was a, uh, uh, wrote about natural history, wrote about creation, flowers, uh, 
think animals, things of that nature. And Pliny the Elder, as an administrator, was responsible for carrying out per, uh, persecutions of Christians. And so as he is doing this, he's wondering really how effective this is. They're willing to die because they have this belief in resurrection. They're not too concerned about dying because they're going to go right to heaven. It really doesn't scare them. They're not fearful. How far should he go? And so he's writing to Trajan, the emperor, to find out um, just what he should do and how he should handle this. And in his letter, he says, they, that is the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. That is a recognition of the remembrance of the resurrection early in the morning. On a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ, so there's historical attestation there, as to a God, indicating the deity, they treated God, Christ as God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to um, not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. And so basically what he recognizes here is that for all practical purposes, uh, these Christians were just like anybody else. They worshiped their God, uh, Jesus, and they, uh, uh, at one point, he, later in the letter, he talks about his followers as believing in this excessive superstition and a contagious superstition, uh, which is similar to the way Tacitus, and I'll talk about Suetonius next. Suetonius talks about that uh, in the same way. So uh, this, it, this talk about the food of an ordinary and innocent kind is a reference to... Um, to communion and what was called in the early church a love feast when everybody would come together and eat together. So he doesn't see anything extremely dangerous about these Christians and sees them as being fairly moral and ethical. Now the next witness of the existence of Jesus at this time is by Suetonius. Usually you just refer to as Suetonius. His name, full name is Suetonius. Uh, Tranquillus. He was another Roman historian along with Tacitus, and he makes one reference to Jesus and one to Christians, and uh, he writes during the time of Emperor Hadrian, uh, 117 to 138. For those of you who connect that to Jewish history, Hadrian is the one who um, uh, invaded uh, Israel during the second revolt of Bar Kokhba, and he's the one who cast all the Jews out of Jerusalem, renamed it uh, Capitolina uh, Aelolia, and also uh, he's the one who renamed uh, Judea uh, Palestine in order to just remove all their history and wipe it out and do away with it. So that's, uh, that's Hadrian, also built Hadrian's Wall up in uh, the north of Britain to keep the Picts and the Scots out. So he wrote at about an event at the time of Claudius, and he states, because the Jews at Rome, if you remember uh, in Acts, tells us that Claudius kicked all the Jews out because they were causing trouble. Well, he says, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances 
at the instigation of Crestus. This is another misspelling, but he's talking about Christ. He expelled them from the city. If you remember when we were studying Acts, we talked about Paul traveling uh, to various cities in, in Asia Minor and Greece. He would go to the synagogues first, and then there would be this uproar and riots caused by the Jews, and sometimes by Gentiles like the silversmiths in Ephesus. And then, um, so this would cause an uproar. So be, apparently there were some riots in Rome caused by the uh, Jews who were rejecting Jesus. And of course, uh, Christianity was in the womb of the Jewish uh, culture. And so that would have caused quite, a, uh, quite an uproar uh, in Rome. And so for that reason, he says, Claudius expelled him. Now, another source of information, other than these Gentile pagan writers from the first century is Flavius Josephus, Flavius Josephus. And Josephus is an important source because Josephus is Jewish. Josephus uh, uh, lived in the uh, first century. He was born around, uh, uh, around um, 40 to 50. He is a general in the Jewish army at the time of the Jewish revolt in 66 to 70. His army that he is command of is in the north in Galilee, and he's defeated, and he surrenders his troops. And then he went over to the Romans. He said, there's no way we can defeat him. Everybody needs to just give up, um, give in. We can't do it. Uh, so he was viewed by the Jews as a, as a traitor. And he was taken in as a member of the household for, uh, for Titus and Vespasian. And so they're the Flavian emperors. So he adopts their name, as, their family name is his. That's why he's called Flavius Josephus. And as a Jew, after all of that was over with, he goes back to Rome. He wrote on the histories of the Jews and uh, the antiquities of the Jews. And so he says... Uh, uh, writes a lot about the wars of the Jews, and he's an excellent source to read about uh, about what is going on in the first century. And he also wrote about the in the antiquities of Jews, the the uh, what we would refer to as the biblical history, but also the intertestamental history of the Jews. And in antiquities, 1833, there's a highly controversial passage where he talks about Jesus. Now in this quote, I have uh, italicized certain lines, and there's a lot of debate over this, and I believe on the basis of what I've studied and the questions, and I've asked the friends of mine who've spent more time studying this, that these italicized lines were probably inserted by Christians at some later date. There's enough evidence that they're probably not original. But even if they're not original, this statement says a lot about the existence of Jesus. And so I'm going to read it, and I'm going to leave out the italicized lines. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. Now, a wise man in Israel is a man who's from God, a man who is a prophet, a man who is an expositor of the law. So by calling Jesus a wise man, he's saying a lot about who Jesus was. Um, the statement, if it be lawful to call him a man, is just uh, put in, inserted later. Uh, 
For he was one who wrought surprising feats or miracles in some translations, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. So here we learn that this Jesus is a teacher of men, indicates that he would have had a group of disciples or students who followed him around. Also tells us that he performed miracles. Goes on to say, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And that tells us that there were both Jews and Gentiles who followed him. Uh, then it says he was the Christ or he was the Messiah that was inserted as well. We're told that when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. Now what he's saying there tells us that it's at the time of Pilate that it was he was uh, punished because of the instigation of rulers among the Jews, the principal men among us that he was condemned to the cross, that is, he would be executed with one of the worst deaths assigned to criminals. Those that loved him at the first didn't forsake him. Now we think, well, wait a minute, Peter denied him and they ran when he died, but they, they came back. And so so he, his followers ultimately didn't leave him because of the resurrection. We know the rest of that story. And um, and then there's this insertion, for he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophecy foretold, blah, blah, blah. So the rest of it isn't part of the original. But that tells us a lot about the historical existence of Jesus and that, that he has attestation from non-believers, from non-Christians in the first century, both um, Christians and Jews. Now, Another thing you can say about the Jews is in the first century and second century and third century, there was a lot that was said and written in the Talmud about Jesus. Now, when most people cite the Talmud and what the Talmud says about Jesus, they cite from the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud's bad enough, but when you look at what is said about Jesus in the Palestinian Talmud, it is exceptionally blasphemous. It is really hostile to Jesus. Uh, the Babylonian uh, Talmud is just hostile to Jesus. But there's a number of things that you can see in relation to the, uh, to the Talmud, but they, it clearly affirms that the Jews accepted his historical, his historical existence. And one other statement here, a couple of pages from the earlier quote, there's another statement by Josephus that James, the brother of, talking about the death of James, that he was the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. That would make sense unless you had already set, introduced him into the narrative in an earlier page. Now, in the Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a, we find the statement, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, which is Jesus, uh, the Greek is Jesus. So Yeshua, Yeshu, uh, just doesn't have that last syllable, Ya, on there, uh, are all forms of the same name. Yes, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Now Paul talks about cursed is any man who hangs on the tree. This was a euphemism in, in Jewish language 
that related to how they describe someone who was crucified. It comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament that was actually before crucifixion was invented and introduced. And so that was applied to those who were crucified. So the Sanhedrin 43 recognizes that uh, Yeshu was hanged or crucified. And then it adds a number of fanciful things that aren't, aren't true. But there's a number of other places in the Talmud that I didn't want to get all sidetracked into all this where they, they refute and try to refute the virgin birth of Mary, and they say that she was uh, uh, had an affair with this Roman soldier named Pantera, and some people think that uh, that that's a play on words. It wasn't really an actual soldier like that. They just made up the name because it's a play on words, and it sounds very very similar to Parthena, which is the uh, Greek word for virgin. So. Uh, you have these statements, but what they tell us in their opposition to Jesus is their testimony to the historicity of Jesus, that he wasn't a myth, he wasn't just something that was dreamed up by his followers later on, but you have the ongoing hostility by the Jews as exhibited by the, uh, by the statements in, in the Talmud. Then there's another statement by a man, I don't think I put this in the lineup, by Phlegon, and he is a freedman of Hadrian. He was born about 80, and he wrote an apology to Hadrian. I thought I had this as a slide, but I don't think I do. And Origen records from his 13th book, he says, now Phlegon in the 13th or 14th book, of his chronicles not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. And in another quote in origin, because we've lost the original, Phlegon's works are no longer extant, uh, he quotes Phlegon regarding this darkness at the time of the crucifixion, and with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified, and the great earthquakes which then took place, Phlegon too, I think, has written in the 13th or 14th book of his Chronicles. And Julius um, Africanus, who I mentioned earlier, also quoted Phlegon with regard to this, and he attempted to explain away the darkness in terms of, a, uh, of an eclipse, which of course couldn't work. So we have all these sources. It just shows that, that no, indeed, that there are these quotes. Now, if you want to remember some things, just remember three things. Remember, uh, remember Tacitus, remember Suetonius, and remember Josephus. Just remember those three, and you can, you know, in a conversation, somebody says something, you can just say, well, there are statements by Tacitus, Suetonius, and Josephus that affirm the historicity of Jesus. Now, you can always go find the exact data from some reference book, like um, um, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or Habermas's book, or a number of other resources give this information, and you can get that later. But that gives you something to hold, hold on to. Then we have these statements by, by Christians. Clement of Rome is the uh, first century, late first century. He's the Bishop of Rome. He wrote an epistle to the Corinthians in 95, and it's mostly doctrinal. 
and related to uh, ethical topics, but in the middle of it, he says something about the gospel in Jesus. He says, the apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent forth from God, so then Christ is from God, and the apostles are from Christ. Both, therefore, came of the will of God in the appointed order, having therefore received a charge and having been fully assured through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and confirmed in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy, Holy Ghost, they went forth with glad tidings that the kingdom of God should come. Now, that's a great quote. Now, you can't write that if the Gospels aren't, aren't written until 150 or 180 or 200. You can't write this if Jesus didn't actually exist in the first century. So this is good uh, validation of the historicity of Jesus. Ignatius of Antioch was a bishop in Antioch in the early, early second century, around 110, 115. Uh, <clears throat> and he's arrested, he's taken to Rome. And on the way, he wrote seven letters to, uh, six were to churches, one was to Polycarp, who was a personal student and disciple of the Apostle John. And in his epistle to the Tralians, he wrote, Jesus Christ, who is of the race of David, who is the son of Mary, who is truly born, so he's emphasizing the humanity, the physical humanity of Jesus, he ate, he drank, he was persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified, died in the sight of those in heaven and on earth, uh, who, uh, and those under the earth, who moreover was truly raised from the dead, uh, his father having raised him, who in the like fashion will so raise us who believe in him. See, so you have these statements. He affirms who he is. He affirms the, that he is a descendant of David, born of Mary, persecuted under Pontius Pilate, and he died and then uh, rose from the dead. In the epistle to the Smyrnians, he says, For I know and believe that he was in the flesh, even after the resurrection, and when he came to Peter and his country. And he goes on in this quote to affirm the historicity of Jesus. And then in a third epistle to the Magnesians, he says, Be ye fully persuaded concerning the birth and the passion and the resurrection, which took place in the time of the governorship of Pontius Pilate. For these things were truly and certainly done by Jesus Christ our hope. So again, you have clear documentation of his historicity. And then also uh, uh, Quadrutus in 125 in his Apology to Hadrian uh, refers to Jesus, his miracles, that he healed people, uh, raised some from the dead. And at the end he says, so that some of them have also lived to our own times. You can still go talk to some of these people who were raised from the dead and who were healed at the time of Jesus. They're still alive. Some of the children and young people uh, would be pretty old, but they were still alive. So the, this is the historical evidence that substantiates the historicity of Jesus. So no one who is educated, no one who is knowledgeable, no one who knows anything about history can possibly claim that Jesus never existed, that he's a non-historical figure. But what they then try to do is they try to say, well, he was just a good moral teacher. We'll address this more next time, that he was just a good moral teacher, or in the 70s, he, 60s and 70s, he was a revolutionary, and there were various other claims. But before we get to that, we need to understand what did Jesus claim 
about himself. So what did Jesus say? What's recorded in the Gospels? Now, this presupposes the truthfulness and the accuracy of the Gospels, that they were written by eyewitnesses, which is what they claim, and that they were not written some 100 or 200 years later. And uh, there's, there's a lot of documentation for that, which I sort of skipped over when we looked at the Bible, because if the Bible's what it claims to be, the Gospels clearly reflect an early um, first century environment. They are accurate in all areas. Nothing's ever been demonstrated that proves, proves them wrong. So in Mark chapter 14, we have Jesus in his, in his trial before the high priest. And we're told the high priest stood up in the midst, in the middle of this trial. This is one of the six trials of Jesus. And asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? Because Jesus is like, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, like a lamb before shears is done, so dumb, so he opened on his mouth. So do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Verse 61, but he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? In other words, are you the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So the term the power is a, is a circumlocution for use, talking about uh, God. So Jesus there talks about, A, I am. He is affirming that he's the Messiah. Second, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a messianic title from Daniel 7.13. Uh, he's seated at the right hand of the power. That's from Psalm 110. And uh, Daniel 7 also says the Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven. Immediately, the high priest tore his clothes. Now, that's just not for dramatic effect. He tears his clothes. Says, Why, what else do we need? We don't need any other witnesses. He's condemned himself before us by claiming to be God, which is what they crucified him for. And then he addresses the Sanhedrin. He says, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to deserving death. He's condemned to death for claiming to be who he is, the Son of God. Now, in Leviticus 10.6 and Leviticus 21.10, the Torah prohibited the high priest from tearing his garments. He was not to uncover his head or to tear his clothes lest you die upon the penalty of, of death. There's a death penalty for him to take his headgear off or tear his clothes as prohibited in Leviticus 21.10. The only exception to this was in the case of blasphemy. That's why tearing of the robe is so significant, is it could only happen and it was required to happen in the case of blasphemy. Now, I mentioned that those two statements of Jesus about the Son of Man coming with the clouds and then sitting at the right hand come from Daniel 7.13, which is talking about the Son of Man in heaven going to the Ancient of Days to request the kingdom and the Ancient of Days giving the kingdom to Jesus. This is one of those passages you ought to have underlined in your Bible. Uh, we've alluded to it or gone to it many, many times in the study of Matthew on Sunday morning, and that's a passage you ought to know. And of course, same with Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, well, who's the Lord? The Lord is, here is, is Yahweh, God the Father, 
speaking to my Lord. David is speaking. Who is his Lord? Who is over David? He's the king of Judah. There's nobody over him other than God. So it indicates the two persons, at least two persons in the Godhead, and the one, Yahweh, says to the other, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he's seated until those enemies are defeated, which occurs during the campaign of Armageddon when he, uh, God the Son gives the kingdom, I mean, God the Father gives the kingdom, God the Son, the Son of Man, and he returns. So it's very clear that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and in fact, the centurion at the cross recognizes this was the cause of his crucifixion. He trusted in God. He says, let him deliver him now if he will have him. This is said with great sarcasm, uh, for he said, I am the Son of God. There's the testimony there that is, he's crucified by claiming to be the Son of God. Now, what I want you to do at this point is I want you to turn in your Bibles to each of these references, and you should underline these references. These are clear statements where Jesus claimed to be God. Some people say, well, no, no, no. Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, why do you say that? You know, why do you say that? Uh, where do you get that evidence? The gospel accounts say that he claimed to be God. Well, I don't trust the gospel account. See, this gets into a series of regressions, so you have to be able to at least say, well, why don't you believe in the gospel accounts? What evidence do you have that they could not possibly be giving accurate information about Jesus? So in John 10, 25 to 31, Jesus again is in... Um, a confrontation with the Jewish leadership. When he talks about the Jews, John and other writers, even Josephus, refers to them as the Jews. So uh, some people come along and say, see, that's anti-Semitic. It's not anti-Semitic. Uh, John is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All the disciples were Jews. All the followers of Jesus were Jews. There aren't. You have a couple of exceptions in the Gospels of Gentiles uh, becoming followers of Jesus, but 99.9% of them were Jewish. It's not a derogatory term. It basically refers to the leaders of the Judean religious leadership. Jew comes from the word Judah. So uh, Jesus answered and says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. They bear, they bear witness of me. And then he says, I and my father are one. This is a profound statement where Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, what's important to note here is that when Jesus uses the term uh, one here, uh, one, the number one could be used in either a masculine form, a feminine form, or a neuter form, depending on that which it was referring, okay, that to which it was referring. So if it's referring to a masculine noun, then you would use a masculine form of the number of the word one. If it's referring to a feminine noun, it would be a feminine form. If it's referring to a neuter noun, it would be using a, a, a neuter term. And what we have here is a neuter form of the word one. If it was masculine, 
it would be Jesus would be claiming that he is one in person with the Father. But he's not claiming he's identical in person with the Father. He's claiming he is one in essence with the Father. So he uses the neuter form of, of one. But what's their reaction? They understood exactly what he was claiming, that he was claiming to be God, and they reached for the stones to stone him. And the text says that he just walked away. He says in verse 32, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself to be God. So they clearly understood what Jesus was claiming. After this, Jesus just sort of walked through the crowd and disappeared, and they didn't know where he was. In John chapter 5, we have another tremendous statement where Jesus claims to be God. John 5, 17, and 18. You ought to underline each of these verses in your Bible. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And by linking them together, he's implying, at least at this point, that they're the same. And they get it. Look at verse 18. You don't get it, because we don't think the way their language worked. But they got it. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. They understood he was claiming to be identical with God. The Father's working and I'm working. We're, we're doing it together. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So when he says, my father, notice the Pharisees never refer to God as their father. Never shows up that way in the Talmud, the mission, anything like that. Because it, it's, it's like the idiom, you know, son, son of a murderer means you have the characteristics of a murderer. It's not saying your father was a murderer. It's saying you have the characteristics of a of a murderer. So if the son of something is an adjectival form of that, then saying that God your father is identifying yourself with God, that you have the same qualities as God. And so that's what they understood him to be saying, and so they sought to kill him. In John chapter 8, uh, a little further on from the passage we looked at a minute ago, uh, the debate intensifies with the Pharisees. And he says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what's happened in this debate is that he has made the statement that Abraham looked forward to seeing his day, and they replied somewhat sarcastically, well, you're a young man, you can't, couldn't have lived long enough for Abraham to have known you. And he says, before Abraham was, past tense of the verb to be, and he's, then he uses the present tense, but he uses two words in Greek, ego and me. Now, the, the proper name for God is Yahweh. Yahweh is derived from the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be. Hayah and me are the same word. Say our word is or to be. And so when Jesus says ego me, he is repeating the meaning of Yahweh by saying, I am, uh, what did God say to Moses? When Moses said, who do I say that you are? Moses said, tell him that I am who I am. 
So the name of God was often interpreted to be I am. He's the self-existent one. So you, this is very well known in the Gospel of John. Jesus has uh, seven times that he refers to himself as I am. We also think of I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the bread of life. All of these are these I am, ego, me statements that by using that term, he's making a claim uh, to deity. So he claims that here that he is uh, of his, uh, his father in John eight nineteen, which is earlier in that chapter. He said, then they, they said to him, where's your father? And he said, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. For his hour would not come. But by saying no one had laid hands on him, John is implying that they were hoping to, wanting to, trying to, but they weren't able to. So again, he's reinforcing what he indicates several times is their desire to kill him because he's committed uh, blasphemy. And then the last verse from the Gospel of John is from John 14, 8 and 9. Uh, Philip says to the Lord, this is at the upper room discourse right after they're leaving from the uh, upper room. They're getting ready to, they're, they're still talking in the upper room. They're about to leave. They're about to go to uh, Gethsemane. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's sufficient for us. We, we need to know the Father. Jesus had just said, I'm going to go to the Father. And Philip says, show me the Father. It's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you've not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That is a strong claim. Jesus is clearly claims again and again and again that he is God, and that is clear that was why he was crucified. Now, Paul says the same thing. Two key passages are Romans 9, 5. He says, of whom are the fathers, talking about the Jews, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, from the Jews, according to the flesh, in his humanity, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. So he's born, he's according to the flesh, but he is also the eternally blessed God. He is a clear statement that he is the God-man. And then the last passage one you should always be aware of is Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the famous kenosis passage. We've taught it, gone through it many, many times. A clear statement that Jesus had the essence of God. He was in the form of God in verse 6. He didn't um, think that, that, that he it was necessary to assert his deity. That is uh, translated as not considered it robbery to be equal with God. He took on the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. So he was in the essence of God. He took on the bondservant, uh, the role as humanity, found in appearance as a man, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God ex highly exalted him, gave him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then just a last statement from the lips of Peter. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So it was the clear testimony of the early church and the apostles 
that Jesus was fully God. And it was the testimony of Jesus himself. He claimed to be God again and again and again. And that blasphemy in the eyes of the Jewish leader was why they crucified him. So you can't get away with saying Jesus didn't claim to be God. You can't get away with claiming there's no historical evidence outside of the Bible for the existence of Jesus. It's clear that Jesus existed and that he claimed to be God. And so if that's true, what do you do with it? We'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this material, to be reminded of this evidence that you have given, that you don't do anything in secret. You always uh, give evidence. You always substantiate what you are doing so that we recognize that we're not just believing something because it's a good thing or it makes sense or it, it works for us but we're believing because there is historical attestation of it and that you have given us that evidence. We're not putting our brain in neutral. In fact, we're using our brains. And that it is those who reject the claims of Jesus who really aren't using their brains uh, very well. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to witness and that we might have a recall of this information when we are talking to people about the Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.